0: Letter 12 Just thinking about what happened will make you weep. I've been afraid of saying about this bit ever since I started telling my side of the story. Do you pray? I reckon you don't. Your sort don't need miracles. You got the law on your side. Here's what I pray. I pray the Almighty will give me strength to tell you everything I know. And then I pray that he will give you strength to rescue me and my poor soul once I'm done. Have you booked a visit yet? No surprises when I say my nightmares come back to gloat. Last night I lost my trainers in them. It was the red ones I robbed off Sharon McNally when we bunked off school one time. Which is typical nightmares. Soon as I saw Sharon's trainers disappeared off my feet, I was being chased all over again. It's always me getting run after by gremlins down streets with no one on them. And there's always something horrible that happens next this time it's broken glass and hardly no laughing matter neither only my nightmares do have their sense of humor all the places i was running in was glittery with bits of smashed up bottles i knew sharon's trainers were never going to get found again but that weren't the point the point were my nightmares want my feet to leave pools of blood behind I went like a maniac. It was dark, but not dark enough to see there was nobody about. I caught my face in windows, as usual. It's always in windows in buildings I run by, or car windows, or car mirrors. But listen, in my new nightmares, I don't look like Scarly no more. My eyes are sunk back in. I'm thin as a stick again, my hair is pink again. And the more I run, the more I know it's scarly chasing me. You can tell by looking in my eyes how I don't like sleeping no more. Of Course, no one looks in your eyes, cause that ain't allowed. So no one can know how rotten I look inside. Except there's always one that will bend the trend. This one girl. She's big. She's got arms like piled up tires. She goes, what's your problem? You look like shite. I'm only saying what the pile of tires said to me. That's allowed. We both know the proper word is RIT. But this girl comes from Liverpool. They don't say nothing right up there. I didn't argue if that's what you're thinking. Cause if this girl wants to blaspheme, that's her calling. I wandered the other way, telling her what a foul sinner she was. I told her I hoped she didn't have too much bother burning in hell forevermore, cause that's where she was off to in a horse cart. Did you know, the more rotten inside you feel, the more you want to say French words. So many times lately, I could have blurted the odd blaspheme or two even pathetic ones like her then I think of my vow to you which won't even let me whisper wrong words I have to chew on them instead and swallow them down cuz you're the keeper of my sacred oath I will confess one more thing this bit about Scarly, I'm so afraid of telling it would be more true if the rude words in it could be said as they got spoken that's why i thought if someone else has blasphemed against the creator of all things no matter how foul it is i will report it to you as it happened you will observe that i ain't said nothing yet about louise grunt i suppose you guessed by now my real word for Scarly's bit on the side rhymes with grunt, but rules is rules, so I won't even think that word out loud. Only she is what she is. She is also a weasel, which is why I call her weasel, when I don't call her grunt. You might say, hang on a minute, weasel grunt ain't no bother to anyone with her knitting needles and her soft speeches. But what you don't know is this. She likes to worm her way in. She's wrapped scarly round her bony little fingers. We all know what them two was up to with their hands. Don't get me wrong. I couldn't give a fly. You know what if them two was doing things in private, only blokes should be doing. I ain't no racist. What I am, though, is righteous. What are you righteous about, I hear you ask? I am righteous about the debts, that's what. Scarly was owed, plain and simple. Just the interest on her financials to the Weasley Louise boggles the brain. I would have sent two lumps from the gym round to break both the old tart's legs when she didn't cough up. but. I ain't Scarly, I'm her twin, is all. At any which rate, much as it would have been a most utter delight to teach the grunt some business basics, there was other things to fret about. There was those Daily Mail readers for a start. I goes to Scarly, I says to her, let's catch a train going southwards. Let's you and me melt into one of those seaside towns. As you will no doubt know, places like Devon and Cornwall is too far away for secret agents to come chasing after anyone. We didn't do that, though. Soon as Scarly saw me turn up in Liverpool Street, she'd done her nut. As if she had any rights to. She says how ungrateful I am, how I can't be trusted, how I ain't no better than the Daily Mail readers she's trying to get away from. Me! Me! I'll tell you something. I gave her a piece of my thinking then. I told Scarly how any bog-standard daily mail bloke snooping about could see right through her pathetic routines. Rules is rules, though. Those ain't the real words I used. What I used was more shouty and obscene, but you get the idea after we calmed down i took my wig off that was a relief i can tell you then scarlet goes it's hilarious seeing you with your wig not on she says how straight away i looks like i'm her again she says how she can't even credit her own eyes her words not mine we giggled loads i said I'm glad we made up again. Now we can offer those (laughs) daily mail readers two for the price of one. And all the while, Weasel Grunt can only gape like the dead fish she is. She never had no clues. She couldn't say nothing that was clever. Even Scarly told her she was a knobhead. Her word, not mine. Then we left we grabbed a train back to Cambridge. All the way back, we made people not stare at us. We done this by smudging too much lipsticks on our mouths. What you do then is you stick your tongues out and ogle at anyone trying not to look. It is glorious fun. And I got Scarly speaking like me too. She loved saying (laughs) this and (laughs) that. It made us laugh and grizzle till our bellies ached. But even then, even then, what I knew deep down was, we was only pretending to be happy. In case you thought I forgot about the debts, I didn't. Before me and Scarly left the station, I leaned over and whispered to the grunt weasel that she weren't going to get away with nothing over my dead corpse. That wiped the grin off her face in a quick tick. Her grin ended up on mine instead, which was most satisfactory. Have you ever seen a dead corpse? Just seeing one makes you shriek inside. I saw this bloke one time, hanging from a scaffold. Did I tell you? Only this bloke weren't even dead. His lips could still wriggle he made his hand point. I ran. If you learned anything about me so far, it will be this. I never did stop running. After I seen Scarly dead on the floor, I can't even stop running in my nightmares. It made me ratty, I will grant, her only ever yapping about her beanstalker bloke. She blamed him and his henchmen for making us hide away and binge all week. By the way, Scarly was calling him the Wurthherd, cause in better times that's what I told her he was. Ah, men. Only, these weren't better times no more. Even I was on edge, cause of what Scarly thought the Wurthherd was scheming. I thought I seen him looking about. Only. I might not have. It was dark. We had a few. We shut the curtains. I sneaked out next morning to get the shopping done. I made cups of tea all day. They all went cold. Apart from cocoa Pops, we hardly ate nothing else. All we drank was vodka. We watched non-stop telly. When it got worse, Scarley locked herself in her room. All week, she was saying she didn't want to do her all. The day it happened, it was morning. I never even seen her. And after all that, the judge has the nerve to say it was me what done it. Hang on. That's wrong. Please believe this. I wasn't even indoors. I never saw Scarly come out of her room. I went off to the graves. It was just me and no one else there. I was on a bench, speaking to my real mum about my troubles. I was grumbling about how I didn't have no clue what to do next. I stayed there till it poured. It's a haze how those rocks come into my hands. I must have picked them up after I seen what was done to Scarly. They had spirals on the insides. I can still see them now clear as spit, weird spirally shapes, and scarly, all curled up. It was like she was only dozing. She was on her side, the way she sleeps. I knew in my heart, though, I knew she was gone. I seen the puddles of blood round her neck, soaking into her nightgown. They told the judge how I was kneeling by her face when they come to get me. They said how I couldn't stop crying because it weren't my fault. My sister was more than everything to me. Why should I hurt her? All I had done was come back home. The door was wide open. I was soaking. Scarley was already dead. Maybe I did kneel by her side. Maybe I did pick up the stones but I only did that so I could stare at the spirals inside and shout out loud for my loss. Charlotte was murdered on the 20th of February, 2017. I showed you the pathologist's report. It's hard for me these days to understand how I became so habituated to the language of criminal justice. I suppose it's the only language there is that deals so routinely with tragedy. The report stated that the injuries to the back of Charlotte's skull were consistent with having been struck by a blunt object. The medical examiner considered that the victim had been attacked from behind. She was probably hit once. She would have died instantly. Samples taken the day she died revealed high levels of alcohol in her blood. The stone was very likely the murder weapon. The two sections that Marley had been holding in her hands fit together perfectly indicating that it had come apart during the attack. In order to infer the brute force of the blow, it was sufficient for the medical examiner to provide details of the concentric fractures that had occurred around the damaged area and how the impact had caused fragments of bone to be pushed into the victim's cranium. This medical report was among the first of many documents to come into my hands once I had decided to take Marley's case on, late in April 2018. It was part of the initial bundle of papers sent to me by her trial solicitors. Over the coming months, between May and August, I would accumulate more material. It amounted in the end to 11 lever arch files, with close to a thousand pages in them and two shoeboxes I used to store miscellaneous items. As well as the medical report, Marley's trial solicitors had forwarded other documents used by the Crown Prosecution Service to make the case that Marley had been Charlotte's murderer. Among them was a statement from a neighbor in Charlotte's Road in Cambridge. The neighbor's name was Daphne Popham. She'd given her account to the police the day Charlotte died. Mrs. Popham claimed that she'd overheard what she believed to be the aggressive shouts of two young females. She didn't investigate because she was too afraid to leave her home. She was the one who called the emergency services. The call was logged as having been made at 11.16am. Connected with this statement was a transcript of what Mrs. Popham had said in some distress during the call. She was an elderly woman and seems to have been speaking softly at the time. The transcript indicated that the call center operator was having difficulties understanding her. Two officers were dispatched to Charlotte's home. They arrived at 12.05 p.m. Their statements were written in the same blank, matter-of-fact, criminal justice language I can no longer comfortably reconcile myself with, as you know. It seems anachronistic now that the feelings of shock and upheaval that must have accompanied the experiences those officers had should be so absent from the procedure of recording what they saw. Sometimes I say that it was after I woke up from my coma that everything changed, but it might have been more gradual than that. The officers who attended the scene wrote their statements the day after Charlotte was killed. There was a male constable and a female sergeant. They had entered the property through an open front door. In the lounge to their left they observed a fully clothed female kneeling beside another female's body. In the language of their statements they formed the opinion that the female lying on the floor in her nightgown was either unconscious or dead. It was mentioned by both officers that the female kneeling next to the victim appeared to be distressed. When this female turned and saw the officer's uniforms, her distress increased. One of the officers mentioned that this female's hair and clothing appeared to be wet. They both noted the close resemblance she bore to the victim. Between gobbled breaths, the suspect managed to say, This ain't happening. This was how the suspect's words were recorded in the male officer's statement. The female officer heard it slightly differently. She wrote the unsolicited comment as, This can't be happening. The suspect subsequently refused to sign either of the officer's pocket notebooks, which would have been corroborative of what she actually said. Whatever she said at that moment, this was virtually the only difference I could detect between the officer's accounts. Both had seen that Marley was in possession of two objects, one in each hand. The objects appeared similar. They were rounded on the outsides. They had smooth, black surfaces. As likely as not, it was the stone from the river Alwyn which had split in two. The female officer noticed a spiral pattern, visible on the upward-facing flat side of both parts. The male officer had drawn his weapon. He was equipped with a device referred to in his statement as the X-26E taser. He stated that it was capable of delivering a 50,000-volt surge of electricity. He wrote that he warned the suspect if she didn't put the objects she was holding on the floor straight away. She risked being incapacitated without further notice. Apparently sobbing now, Marley placed the objects on the floor. She was asked to get up and step away from the body. She followed this instruction, mumbling unintelligibly. There was blood on her hands as well as her jeans. While the male officer stood by, the female officer put on a pair of blue nitrile gloves and approached the victim. Charlotte lay on her side. Her blood had oozed into the floorboards near her head. Her right arm was flung out in front of her. Her right leg was twisted back in what appeared to be an unnatural position. The female officer crouched behind the body and bent over to get a closer look. Having leaned in close to Charlotte's mouth, the officer determined that there was no sign of breath. She felt for a pulse in the left wrist, which was exposed because the left arm was twisted behind Charlotte's back. The officer felt no pulse. The male officer radioed for support as well as urgent medical assistance. The female officer attempted mouth-to-mouth resuscitation while her colleague set about securing Marley's detention. The suspect's arms were handcuffed behind her back in what was referred to in his statement as the rear stack position. By 1222 it was established that the suspect was the victim's twin sister. She'd identified herself as Marley Godwin. The ambulance crew arrived shortly after that along with a doctor on a motorcycle. There were other police officers in attendance by then Charlotte Godwin was declared dead at the scene. At 12.38, Marley Godwin found herself being arrested on suspicion of murder. I began receiving Marley's letters from the beginning of January 2018. It was apparent that she was looking for a lawyer to help her appeal her conviction. As you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I wrote back pointing out that there were better placed law firms in and around London able to offer Marley the advice and assistance she felt she needed. But she continued to write to me. She wrote almost weekly. By the conclusion of her case, I think I had over twenty letters. To begin with, Marley's persistence did nothing to change my mind or attract me in any way to her cause. I found the letters difficult to comprehend. I stopped trying after a few weeks. It wasn't just the handwriting, which even you found difficult, bold and upright, with certain capitals unnecessarily adorned in curls and twists. The communications themselves were fragmented and long-winded. My impression all along was that their author was not only unfocused in the presentation of her case, but mentally unstable. Others in the office appeared to find Marley's letters amusing. As soon as they were delivered, they would be read and talked about. By the end of February, the firm's senior partner had got himself involved, so that each new letter was being anticipated as another thrilling installment to be poured over in ways that I found inappropriate and tried my best to discourage. The case came to me in a trickle before it turned into a flood. What I gathered from the office gossip was that not only had Marley been convicted of her sister's murder, but that they were twins separated at birth. One of the secretaries mentioned to me that Marley had grown up in social services care and had only discovered she was a twin in 2017. It didn't surprise me when I found out she was a drug addict, nor was I surprised to learn that despite being convicted by a unanimous jury, Marley continued to protest her innocence. Her claim was that she'd been out of the house at the time of her sister's death. She implied that her sister had a sinister uncle. She wrote disparagingly about a partner. Typically, she called Louise the weasel or the grunt in her letters. When Marley began to hint that the Secret Services might have been involved in a plot to murder her sister, there was a buzz of excitement in the office. My employer then was Antony Bride. I've told you about him. Naturally, he loved the commotion all of this was causing. He was especially keen because he knew how much it annoyed me. He would speak about Marley's case as often as possible and personally ensure that I was updated on all the latest developments. I learned from him that Marley thought I was her savior. Bride found this idea especially funny and mentioned it often. He took to calling me our saviour around the office. I should clarify for the record that this was done in part to rebuke me for habitually referring to him as the ficker. In my defense, there was no reason for Bride to object to being called the ficker. He didn't have a word of German. Each week, the next Marley letter would arrive in the post. With the Ficker's growing and enthusiastic approval, every one of them was destined to be discussed between colleagues. I tried to stay above it. I tried to regard it as no more than part of the background noise of any firm of criminal defense solicitors. I persevered with my duties, which were taxing enough. But Marley's obstinate letter-writing was a force that could not be contained. By the end of May 2018, I felt compelled to open a brief and hopefully conclusive correspondence with her. My intention was to dissuade her from writing to me ever again. This was the thin end of a wedge, though. Unaware of a combination of factors propelling me subliminally towards her case, I fell into the mistaken belief that a cursory consideration of her appeal, if only for the purposes of legal aid, would put me in a position where I could dismiss the matter once and for all. You wondered what it was that attracted me to the case in spite of myself. Honestly, I don't know. There was the office gossip, of course. It seemed to me as if this would never stop. With each new letter, it rose to a higher pitch. I tried to expunge it. I may as well have been trying to command the tides. The distaste I showed for my colleagues' commentary made indulging their absurd speculations even more attractive to them. I find the English tend to enjoy this practice, which they refer to incomprehensibly as taking the piss the ficker himself was a factor. He reveled in the situation. He systematically took the piss. Not content with all the taunts and misquotes he could think of after each new letter arrived, he began urging me to visit Marley in prison. He drummed up support for the proposition that it was my duty to investigate the reasons why she felt she had been wrongly convicted no matter how outlandish those reasons seemed. His disingenuous drivel would extend to the argument that even the whiff of something so appalling as a wrongful conviction should not be tolerated in a civilized society. The more this theater continued, the more I was persuaded that something decisive had to be done, I suppose. But perhaps what was really drawing me towards Marley's case was the fact that my fate could have been the same as Charlotte's. It wasn't that long ago, June 2016, that I was nearly murdered myself. Within minutes of meeting each other for the first time, it was something we had to talk about to get it out in the open. I told you how I'd been walking on a beach when I was hit over the head. My attacker left me for dead. The weapon was a scaffold pole taken from a building site. For twelve days I lay in a medically induced coma. The doctors worried that the damage to my brain might be permanent. When the swelling subsided, I was revived. Waking up from that coma proved to be pivotal in my life. The first person I saw was your mother. It seems to me I'm still making a slow and painful recovery. Some would say I haven't been the same since. I would say I'm a completely different person. mm yeah.